From the New York Times, I'm Charles Duhigg, and this is Change Agent. Our caller today is Beth, and she's got a problem with her resume. I'm trying to go back to work in a regular full-time capacity and not knowing how to account for the gaps in my work history. How many years have you been out of work? Like what, like how big is the gap on your resume? Four and a half years. Beth worked as a curator in some of the biggest museums on the East Coast. And this four and a half year gap is not for the reasons you might think. The specific question for me is, am I better off being honest about my past four and a half years? It seems like it might just be easier to lie about it. Would you be okay with that? No, I would not be okay lying about it. The reason she's uncomfortable lying is because it's all tangled up with another problem she has, with drinking. Beth is an alcoholic in recovery. It got to the point where I was hiding bottles places and my husband was finding them. And we had a bathtub that was like a, um, like an old clawfoot tub. But I would hide bottles behind the bathtub so that when I was in the shower, I could be drinking. And this went on for a long time, that I would drink in the shower at 7 o'clock in the morning, get on a train, get myself to Penn Station, pick up more wine, drink it, and go into work. Beth was lying to everyone for years. I would drink and lie about it. I would miss work and lie about it. I would be unpredictable with friends and lie about it. What's the story you're telling yourself inside your head about why that's okay? Um, and I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'm under a lot of stress. I have the only full-time job here in this family of, you know, a husband and a wife and two kids. And I am allowed to do this because it's what I need to do to make this whole thing function. She eventually lost her job, damaged her relationship with her kids, and got a divorce. At one point, things got so bad that she was living in a homeless shelter for a while. She was in and out of rehab for years. And then one day, her teenage daughter just showed up at her apartment. Prom was coming up, and they had talked about going shopping for a dress together. I was passed out in my bed with bottles around, and she was so upset and angry with me that she stormed out and didn't speak to me for four months. And and I remember looking at those prom pictures afterwards and thinking, you know, you know, I wasn't living up to my role as a parent. It was devastating. Beth knew she needed to make a real change. I thought you have to stop drinking entirely and stay stopped. And Part of what I've learned in this process of recovery is to be fully honest about 
not being able to get and stay sober. And so now, of course, honesty is the most important thing when it comes to my recovery. And it sounds like what you're saying, and and this totally makes sense to me now, is that you don't want to lie in any situation, not even a job interview. That's right. So... So let's say let's say you just avoided the alcoholism altogether. Like like let's say it, the gap never comes up in the interview, and you just never mentioned that you had a drinking problem. Well, I could, but it's like a chinking away at the armor. Like you're in a new job where nobody knows you're an alcoholic. In fact, to them, you're not an alcoholic. You're successful and fun and social. So. I could be the person they think I am, but it begins the slippery slope. So why not just say, I was an alcoholic? Okay, so people would think, oh, well, she can't control herself. I'm certainly not going to hire her because alcoholics are unpredictable and unreliable people. I started wondering... How worried should she really be about bringing this up in an interview? I mean, I would probably advise her not to disclose. I talk to a few executives who interview people all the time. How can I hire this person when I know they're going to be going out and having to entertain clients and being around difficult situations? The worst thing that would happen is you get the job, you start, and then you just go in a bender and you disappear. Would I hire somebody if they told the truth that they had been an alcoholic? I'd like to think I would. Would I actually? I don't know. This is kind of what I expected to hear. But then I found out about this guy. Somebody who's willing to be that open and talk about a real problem that they've had personally, terrific. That only makes them a better fit for our team. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear the story of why this executive thinks the way he does and how his story might help Beth with her resume problem. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. We're back. The executive we heard just before the break is Patrick Doyle. He's the CEO of Domino's Pizza. Reporter Alex Young talked with him about why his thinking is so different from most executives. All right. Patrick Doyle. Hey, Patrick. It's Alex. Hi, Alex. How are you? Patrick Doyle's been with Domino's for 20 years and has been CEO for the last seven And why would he hire someone who admits to being an alcoholic? To find out, we have to remember how Domino's got its start. Domino's Pizza, Domino's Pizza delivers. 
Call now and we'll deliver a hot, delicious, custom-made pizza to you in less than 30 minutes. Domino's revolutionized pizza delivery. And Patrick remembers the first time he discovered it in his college dorm room in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was an epiphany. I mean, that was like one of the the greatest things that had ever happened to me. It's like, really? I call this number and somebody arrives with pizza in like 25 minutes? And that was amazing. So when he got a marketing job there in his 30s, Patrick was psyched. I was a guy leading the charge on the idea that we are the fast, convenient pizza guys. But they weren't the only ones delivering pizza anymore. And being fast and convenient wasn't cutting it. We were losing customers. You know, we, I mean, our, our sales were down. You know, 2006 through 2008, um, you know, we had negative same-store sales in the U.S. We were in real trouble. So they started closing down stores and tried to figure out what was going wrong. We had heard all of this feedback from customers. They, they weren't happy with the pizza. The, the crust tastes like cardboard comment was probably the, the most common. But, you know, it was, it was across the board. I mean, you know, there, were, there was criticism of everything. And who cares if your food comes fast if it doesn't taste good? So Patrick and his team started to overhaul the pizza recipe. We ultimately changed everything. The crust, the sauce, the cheese. All three of kind of the core parts of our pizza. The whole process took about a year. And when they were done, they were ready to reveal their new and improved pizza. We were starting to get things moving the right direction again, and all of a sudden this happens. Two Domino's employees facing charges tonight, and this is why a shocking video that hit the web. Both of the people in the video now here at the Catawba County Jail getting booked on a charge of contaminating food. And if Here's what happened. Two Domino's employees in North Carolina filmed themselves doing some pretty gross things to a pizza order. Our lucky customer that's in need of some snot. One guy stuck cheese up his nose, then sprinkled it on some cheesy bread. Then he sneezed on it. <laughs> and that laughing? That's the woman videotaping it. We just talked to her, her own mother, who said she's even repulsed by that video. By the time Patrick heard about it, it had nearly a million views. Viewer count is skyrocketing. It is clearly going viral. You know, with everything else going on now, we're going to get hit by just sheer stupidity. In the past, when a crisis like this would come up, Patrick would deal with it in the way most CEOs would. He and his team of PR people would sweat over a press release. You'd get in a room, you'd think through what you were going to do, you'd craft it, and you'd get the wording exactly right. But this was a new kind of crisis. They'd never come up against the power of a viral video. Remember, this is 2009. That is ancient history in social media. You know, what happened to us then was, uh, was new for us, but honestly, it was pretty new for everybody. So Patrick decided to make his own YouTube video. Hello, I'm Patrick Doyle, president of Domino's USA. Recently, we discovered a video of two Domino's team members who thought that their acts would be a funny YouTube hoax. It's two minutes long. Patrick's wearing his blue company-issued Oxford shirt, sitting in front of a Domino's sign. And he's angry. It sickens me that the actions of two individuals could impact our great system. Mostly, the response to it was extremely positive. After Patrick posted his video, people just moved on, and Domino's weathered the crisis. 
I'm wondering if there's anything you learned from the response to the viral video. I think there's I think there's no question that we learned something from that, and it made us more comfortable um, being who we are. And who were they? A giant pizza franchise with terrible pizza. So they came up with an idea. Our idea is we should go really brutally honest. And on December 28th, 2009, they turned their crazy idea into a commercial. I hear what some folks are saying about our stuff. Oh, this one's bad. Worst excuse for pizza I've ever had. It almost feels like a political attack ad or a clip from a 60 Minutes expose. With melodramatic music, shaky close-ups of insulting tweets, and hidden camera footage of people griping about how bad the pizza is. The sauce tastes like ketchup. And these aren't actors. Domino's pizza crust to me is like cardboard. They're from real focus groups. Domino's tastes uh, low quality and, and forgettable. You know, we've talked about it, that, you know, old kind of military strategy was, you know, if you wanted your troops committed, you burn the bridge behind them so that they know that they can't retreat. And once we went out and did this, there was no way that we could back off from this. We had to make this work. But what if it didn't work? Did you have a plan B? Um the, the reality was plan B was probably I get fired um, and my replacement figures out a, a, a way to fix this after the fact. But then... We launched it on Monday and by Wednesday our sales were up double digit. We were running out of pepperoni by about week three, so we certainly never expected that it was going to grow our sales as quickly and as dramatically as it did. They called it the pizza turnaround, and it went down in advertising history. Harvard Business Review said it was, quote, an ad campaign that has become legendary for its boldness. Since then, Domino's stock has grown over 2,000%, outperforming Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple. Today, they have over 12,000 locations in over 80 countries, and they're continuing the worldwide expansion. And Patrick believes... It's because they were honest about their flaws. Most companies, most brands are so focused on being polished and, you know, kind of perfect communication. And if somebody is going to convince you that they're going to change, it's got to start from them absolutely owning the problem in the first place. Reporter Alex Young. After the break, we're going to do a little experiment with Beth. We're going to have her try out the lessons we just learned from Patrick in a mock job interview. We're back. And we wanted to see... If Beth talked openly about her alcoholism, would that make her a stronger job candidate? Or would it just ruin her chances? So we set up a mock interview for her. It's not actually a real interview. With a high-powered curator at a big-name museum who is willing to play along. Beth and I went over the plan, building on Domino's example of acknowledging up front that there's a problem. I think the first step is the reveal, right? It's the, I am an alcoholic in recovery. And then the second step is 
what is the process that I went through to address that? And then the third being, you know, how has it made me a better person? Why would it make me a better employee? And then testing, testing, testing. It was time. How's that? Okay. Beth was going to interview for an imaginary curator position. I'm ready. I'm ready. As ready as I'll ever be, I suppose. (laughs) I don't know. I told the interviewer that she was meeting with someone who had a gap in her resume, but I didn't tell her why that gap existed. Hi. Have we ever met before? You know, before we start, there's all these legal issues about whether you can reject a job candidate because they're an alcoholic. But the point of this exercise is to try and help Beth figure out how to talk about this. And because of that, we're just going to set all those legal issues aside and we're keeping the interviewer anonymous. Because for this to be useful for Beth, we need to trust that the interviewer is giving her honest feedback. Beth, could you tell me about your management style? Right. I think the experience that I've had that's most pertinent to your question. Um, Things kick off pretty smoothly. The interviewer is taking notes, and Beth is sitting across the table from her, making eye contact. As a senior curator of that museum's largest curatorial department. She seems really confident. Well, I see on your on your resume that you have two moments in your career trajectory in which you've worked independently. Mm-hmm. Right. And here was the chance for Beth to talk about why she has a gap in her resume. Um, one of, I mean, one of the things that I did do is I wanted to focus a lot more on my own writing. 20 minutes go by. The interviewer keeps asking about those gaps in her resume, but Beth doesn't mention her alcoholism. You were there for not a very long time. Did it not right. work out for you and what you expected? Or um, there, were, there were a couple reasons for leaving. And then actually. she does it. Um, I am an alcoholic in recovery. And I'm happy to say that I'm sober and <laughs> now and very confidently so. But it's been a really, it was a really rough time in my life. I mean, I, I'm always hesitant to talk about it because I know that different people have different understandings or um, exposure to alcoholism. You know, I but then she just kept on going. But I will have to say that my version of it was quite bad. I went through a very difficult time in my efforts. I lost the trust of my family. I tried a lot of different things to get sober, and a lot of them did not work. was largely responsible for my divorce. She talked for a long time. So much about alcoholism and recovery can be about secrets and hiding. And And then the interviewer asked a few more questions, and that was it. Oh, Beth... That was not easy for you. We said goodbye to Beth. Thanks so much. And I wanted to hear from the interviewer how she thought it went. Okay, curveball. Took me for... Um, I was taken aback at first only because I'm not used to any kind of really deep personal confessions during an interview process. But I really genuinely respected her for doing that and for explaining it. Would you hire her? I, I, I would. I would probably... Well, m- sorry. Most positions have a built-in probation period anyway. So I would use that very carefully and really try to understand. If, it, if on paper and all the, re- all the references panned out and she was truly the strongest candidate then yes, I would. I would, I would um, get, take the gamble. The art world is very small 
if I call a reference, I'm going to hear it, if that's why she was let go. So certainly if I heard she had a drinking problem and had to leave job, then I would instantly take her resume and put it away and not consider her. But in an interview where she is honest and speaks about this time of recovery as actually being a time of gaining strength, I would find that interesting. And I think honesty probably does make sense. Did she explain her alcoholism, you think, in the best way to you? Did she make the best case for herself? I wouldn't make such a big deal of it because she's already being honest by admitting that she's had this problem. Simply volunteering it maybe is enough honesty to make you believe whatever she says next. I think that she could basically say, maybe just be very upfront, I needed to leave this job because my drinking got out of control. I've sought help. I'm putting my life back together. This is how long it's been. And then move on. A few weeks later, I followed up with Beth. That was actually good feedback. And told her what the interviewer had said. I was very conscious of how uncomfortable it might make her feel. Like that she would be like, you know. And it's hard. Yeah. It's, It's hard to find this balance. It's one of the things that I don't have a good sense for is how much is enough and then where's the line at which point it becomes too much information. I want to be honest but I, I think there's a difference between lying in an interview and not sharing every truth about yourself. As we talked, Beth told me about how she had recently bumped into an old coworker. And she invited me over to her apartment. It was the kind of person she normally wouldn't tell about her history with alcoholism. And... When I got there, she was like, oh, let's, you know, we'll have some wine. And she starts pouring wine. And I said, "Um, no, 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 thank you. I'll just have water. She's like, oh, no, come on. We haven't seen each other in so long. You have to. We have to have wine and celebrate. And, And I was honest with her, you know, and I just said, well, in the intervening years, I really struggled with alcoholism. And and how did she react? She was just like, oh, oh, okay, I see. And and that was the end of the discussion. It felt good to own it. And by saying it, you own it. It doesn't mean you have to tell all the gritty details, like, but just saying it felt good. And then we were standing, and then she poured me water, and then we went to sit down, and we got on to gossiping about all the people that we used to work with and what they're doing now, and it never came up again. A few weeks later, I talked to Beth again, and she told me she had a real job interview, and it went really well. They offered her a temporary curator role, and Beth is optimistic that it will lead to something more permanent. is produced by Alexandra Lee Young and Annie Brown and hosted by Charles Duhigg. Wendy Dore edited the show with Larissa Anderson, who's also the managing producer. Lisa Tobin is our executive producer and Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Eddie Cooper composed our theme song and David Herman and Brad Fisher engineered this episode. 
Special thanks to Sam Dolnick, Andy Mills, and Pierre-Antoine Louis. 